Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome back to the Writers Panel. And hey, Happy New Year. It's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. As you know, I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had almost a thousand writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows that interest you. I myself have written a bunch of things with my writing partner, Ben Acker, so not just myself. Uh, We were on the writing staff of Supernatural, of Puss in Boots, on a few other programs. Last year, though, 2017 was a weird year. We did a lot of writing, but very little of it for TV. We were out pitching a couple of projects, but I'm not allowed to talk about those yet. But here are some things you can run out and buy if you want to support me and if you want to support this show. And supporting me is supporting this show. Uh, Acker and I wrote two Star Wars one-shot comics tied into The Last Jedi, the terrific new Star Wars movie. One of these is about the salt-covered planet of Crate, which you see in the movie. It is stunningly illustrated by Mike Mayhew, who's done a bunch of Star Wars work for Marvel. Um, there are a few pages in there that are among my very favorite comic book work uh, that, that Ben and I have done. And that's out now. You can get that from your local comic book shop or at Comixology. And on January 31st, our story about Benicio Del Toro's character, DJ, is being released. It's penciled by Kev Walker and shows how DJ wound up in jail on the casino planet in The Last Jedi. Both of those are from Marvel. Both of those, get them in your comic book store or on Comixology. And if you want more Star Wars from Acker and me, you can check out our young adult series of novels called Join the Resistance. It's about a bunch of kids who join up with General Leia's resistance in the time leading up to The Force Awakens. It's Goonies with X-Wings. You're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. The first two books are currently available through Amazon, and the third in the trilogy is coming later this year. It won't be a long wait. Finally, uh, also in comics, the collected edition of Death Be Damned, the supernatural western that Acker and I wrote with our pal, showrunner Andrew Miller, uh, who's currently doing the Tremors series, is now available. It's four issues. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and we're very proud of it. That's from Boom Studios, and that collected edition is also available on Amazon. Okay, that is it for now. I'm working a lot on two major projects, one in TV and one in comics, and I'm not allowed to tell you about them. But when I am, you'll be the first to know. So thanks for listening to these long introductions, these Mark Maron-style rambling introductions. Uh, But for now, I really want to hear from you. What writers haven't I had on the podcast that you want to hear from? What TV are you watching? What am I not asking that you want to know? Email me at nerdistwriters at gmail.com. I'll read all those emails that come in, and some really nice ones have, so thank you guys, and and I'm going to use your questions going forward. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Uh, Like the Writers Panel on Facebook. Visit writerspanel.tumblr.com. That's all the social media. If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Now more than ever, I need the sweet adrenaline rush of a good review to distract me from all the work I have to do and the dumb, stupid world that we live in. And now, here's a great theme song by Paul and Storm. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to have you guys introduce yourselves on the microphones and tell us uh, somewhere the little listener may have heard your name or seen your name before. Uh, Rebecca, let's start with you. Hi, I'm Rebecca Cutter. I've worked on Mentalist, Gotham, Code Black. That's where you may have... That's it. And as we said, you're working on a, uh, a new pilot. Yeah, I sold a pilot to Stars, Which sounds great. And we, I want to talk oh, about thank you. that. And I'm currently writing. They ordered the second script of that, so I'm working That's on great. that. Now. Congrats. Thank you. Okay. My name's Kenny Smith. Uh, I'm a writer, producer, director. Work on worked on Blackish, The Game, and uh, Jamie Foxx is probably the big ones. And right now, right now, on. I'm on Marlin on NBC, mm-hmm. and I'm developing a pilot with NBC. So we'll know in a week or two. Great. Yeah. And this is, am I right that this is like that autobiographical pilot uh, about <laughs> brothers or brothers-in-law? About my brother-in-law. Yes. Is that is life it specifically with, life with Tom? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> we will talk about it, okay. Andrew. Uh, I'm Andrew Reich. Uh, 
I'm probably best known as Ben Blacker's co-host on uh, Dead Pilot Society podcast. The people love you from that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> fan, I, favorite. fan favorite. Uh, writer and producer, I guess best known for uh, Friends. Um, and currently uh, show running a show for Netflix starring the Reverend Run from Run DMC and Justine Simmons, his mm-hmm. wife. Um, which we just uh, started production on, and also supervising a pilot for Fox. Oh, great. I didn't know that. How nice for you. We mm. don't talk anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for people who don't know, let me just plug Dead Pilots Society yes, real fast. For people who don't know, and you guys should know this so you can send us scripts, uh, Dead Pilot Society is a live series and podcast that Andrew and I did, uh, still do, uh, in which writers who have sold scripts but never had them, uh, they never went to production, will do table reads of those scripts. And we get these unbelievable casts to do the table reads. And uh, they're a lot of fun. We do a little cool. chat with the writer beforehand about what went wrong. <laughs> it's never <laughs> well, the writer's fault. It's never <laughs> the writer's fault. <laughs> what track. Exactly. We've got 21 uh, dead pilots up on the podcast yeah. so far, and they're all really good. They really uh, are. Yeah. Great we scripts, hear, great casts. And, yeah. We hear uh, every time the people going like, why isn't this a show? Like, well, <laughs> listen to the interview and find out why. There's it was always too something. good to exist. Sometimes it's true. It's too beautiful. <laughs> yeah. um, but while we are talking about pilots, you guys are working on pilots now. You've worked on pilots in the past. Let's talk a little bit about that process. And, and Kenny, let's start with you. Um, just about, let, let's talk specifically about this show you're working on and... Sure how it sold, and what was the pitch like? Why this show right now? It was interesting because um, it started with my reps. You know, I said, okay, I'm not going to go back to Blackish. I want to develop. I want to concentrate on that. And so I said, you know, I want to do cable, something edgy. And they were like, well, it's broadcast season now. Why don't we try something there first and see? So I was like, fine. Now, you know, I'll do it for you guys. So I had a couple ideas. Uh, workplace comedy and some friends kind of comedy and I was like oh edgy stuff this will be fun and they were like well you need to have a family comedy too and I was like I don't want to do a family show and they were like no do a family show so I had this thing I said well something about my brother-in-law and it wasn't much more than that and they're like oh we see it this is the one and so what was it about this that people were latching on to well it's interesting Uh, when I married my wife and I tell the story my dad always Mm -hmm. says marry the woman marry the family and so I'm kind of a standoffish person. So when I met my wife, I was like, oh, she doesn't have, she's not really close to her family. She's really just, it's really her sister, and her sister's fine. So I have this vision for my family. It's going to be this black liberal family. And then her sister marries this guy named Tom, a white conservative uh, mass every Sunday. Oh, my God. Kind of, not Midwest, because he's from Maryland, mm-hmm. but that kind of, like, Midwest is what I think we're going to Tom. <laughs> sure. And we're just <laughs> completely different. And so they were like, that's it. That's the story. And so we immediately, my rest were like, let's see if we can get another offer. And then I go to Universal, and um, I go to CBS and ABC. And C- CBS and Universal made offers. ABC we're getting ready to make an offer, but they took like a day, and by that time it was like a bidding war going on. That's crazy. And so they were like, "Well, we'll go with Universal," <laughs> and then went into NBC, and NBC was like, "Yeah, let's do it." That's nuts. So where are you in the process now? Are you waiting to hear? We're waiting to hear back. I hear it went to uh, Bob Greenblatt over okay. at NBC, so we're waiting to hear back. All right. Bob so and Jen. I want to dig into the process a little mm-hmm. bit in a minute, but Rebecca, let's talk uh, to you about your pilot, which is for Stars. You said, yep. and they've ordered the second one. Uh, but what was the pitch like? How did how did it all come together? It's a great story too. Well, if you want to you. talk about that, yeah. So um, I was working on Gotham, and I had I I'd written one pilot. That I, my agents didn't like. They didn't want to send out as a sample. So I was Why kind of. Why not? Do you think? Because I think, in my experience, when I I was trying to like sort of chase an idea of what they wanted, and I mm-hmm. it wasn't really something that I was passionate about. So I had sort of one trash bin pilot under my belt, and I was feeling like, and I had gotten my first staff job from you know, being the assistant and getting the freelance mm-hmm. and getting staffed. And then he had taken me to Gotham, the showrunner. So oh. I had never really done staffing season. And I was like, I need a pilot. I need a pilot. So I came up with this idea, like just sort of all at once, this character came to me, this very like tough, um, hard drinking lesbian, uh, fishery service agent, which mm-hmm. was my father-in-law's career, uh, in Cape Cod. And I was, and, and then I was like, and I'll figure out some crime. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And it came to me really 
hot and heavy, and I started working on it. And just to have a sample, for me, it was just to have a sample. And always my agent said, yeah, but if it's good, we're going to sell it. And I was like, well, slow your roll. This is my first pilot that I'm writing. It's not going to be good. Don't get your you know, hopes up. Um, and I wrote probably the first 40 pages on the hiatus between season one and two of Gotham. Couldn't figure out the ending. You know, I could figure it. I figured it out, but I couldn't really figure it out. It was a lot of like TBD clues that I was like gonna figure out. So had you not outlined it? Did you just? I did, but there was thing ish holes. You know, that I thought I would get to in the script. And And it sounds like it was sort of the procedural holes too. Yeah, not you knew this character. Yeah, I knew the character exactly. Um, And then, so hiatus ended. I'd only written 40 pages I said that's fine I have a job I don't need a sample right now so um, I didn't I picked it up again like eight months later and I read it and um, I do I suddenly realized like the reason I couldn't figure out those clues is because I didn't need to and it really was more of a character story and I needed to like follow the character um and then I finished it, and then I gave it to them, and they said, we can sell this. And so they sent it out to producers, and uh, Jerry Bruckheimer TV signed on. And um, first they wanted to attach an actress. We didn't weren't able to do that. And then we finally just said, let's just go out with it. So we did these, what they called uh, drop-off pitches. Mm-hmm. So because it was already a script, um, we just went out did like really quick 10, 15-minute pitch. With did all you the, have to pitch the season, the series, anything like that when you brought... When, when uh, I went out with yeah. them to do that, I didn't pitch... I mean, it literally was like a 10, 15-minute pitch. It was just sort of like, how did I come up with this character? What's my personal connection to it? Um, and stars, stars was like teetering on the edge of buying it, and then my agents cleverly, uh, one of their other clients had just signed an overall deal at Stars. They said, "Meet with this guy tonight." Uh, Met with him, love at first sight, perfect guy for the project. He came on board as nice. showrunner, and then they committed to it. And then they've just been super supportive. They had very few notes on the pilot, and then they ordered. I wow. just pitched them episode two, and they were into that so I'm on outline for episode two now that's incredible congrats Thanks. that's really cool um, and do you want to uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up on it uh, okay. but Andrew you have written many pilots we've talked about this on, on Dead Pilot Society but um, let's talk specifically about um, Pearl from a couple of years ago because uh, I don't think we have really talked about that publicly no um, this was this was this show was a, this pilot was a big deal for you in many ways yes uh, you know I had a writing partner Ted Cohen and uh, he and I wrote together for like 21 22 years and then we had you know amicably sort of parted ways and it was um, yeah it was my first pilot I was pitching on my own it was going to be the yeah. first script that I was writing that was just going to have my name on it and you know I think as as Kenny found they love it when it's like a a personal story yeah. Um, and, and you know, it was interesting when how that that really came about. You know, my mother had passed away, and this thing had happened that had just stuck with me, which is I, I couldn't bring myself to delete the, her information from my phone. And then my stepfather had called from the home phone, and it came up on my phone that my mom was calling. This was like five months after she right. had died, and it came up that my mom was calling. And for a second, I was just like, oh. And then I realized, I like, go, oh, no, she's obviously not calling. But <laughs> oh wow, something about that moment stuck with me and you know and you know I turned it into this thing where um, through uh, a bunch of levels of story it, it turned into a story about a guy who is able to FaceTime with his dead wife and the dead wife is sort of his coach in getting him back in the dating world and you know dealing with the, the kids um, and you know I pitched it. And it's a high concept idea, and um, I sold it to ABC Studios. You know, and when you're at the studio, you kind of want to sell it to the network. And ABC, it was this classic Hollywood note, which is like, you know, we we love it. Can we lose the part about the guy FaceTiming with his dead wife? Um, and, and, and we like you. Yeah, what they liked was, you know, because uh, I sort of talked about. Uh, my mom had sort of had this conversation with me, uh, you know, a couple months before she died, when she knew she didn't have long about who she thought should marry her husband. Um, and she was going through. She's like, you know, she's like, I've been thinking about my friends and who'd be right for him, and I so think it's funny. this woman. And um, it was such an odd conversation, an <laughs> uncomfortable one for me. But as it turned out, you know, her husband, you know, ended up marrying exactly who my mom. <laughs> 
had picked out, even though she never told either of them uh, that oh she had God. decided this. And so it was this sort of, you know, puppet mastering from beyond the grave. I was just like, my mom was so controlling that she managed to, like, make this happen from beyond the grave. And they loved that. They loved these stories I told about it. And I said, would you consider writing something that's about a woman who learns she has a terminal disease and is just concerned with kind of orchestrating the lives of everyone in her in her family before she goes. And I thought they were insane at first, but then when I started thinking about it and, um, and thinking about my mom and my sister and my stepfather and all these people as characters, and I'd never written anything that autobiographical because when you're writing with a partner everything ends up being this sort of it's not really me it's not really him it's this kind of in between and it's not that you know unless you know we did write one pie that was really about us and and that was but uh, I'd never really written my family so I started really getting into the idea and so wrote this pie that was completely different from what I had I had pitched but I ended up really liking it and then you know it was the first show that Paul Lee picked up to shoot and I got Candace Bergen to you know play the the lead and you know it, it, as much as I often bitch about this like pitching process and how crazy it is to me it seems you know um, it seems like this should be a spec based thing where because mm-hmm. what always happens is you pitch something and everyone has a different idea of what it is yeah. and you try and find this ephemeral thing and you never land on it and the network's always like oh that's just not what we thought this was going to be I was just like well if it was a script then they would know but this was a case where I feel like this crazy pitching process ended up with the script that I really did love and um, and working with Candace Bergen was amazing and you know then yeah. it didn't <laughs> it get, didn't I get picked ask, up uh, I just kind of dig in on one aspect of that which was actually writing the script uh, and writing something on your own that is also pretty personal for the first time in a yeah. long time I'm sure what and I asked this totally selfishly because I'm about to do something on my own which is in comics not in film but still it's it, it's a scary thing writing without a partner after you've been working with a partner. It, well, you don't have, I mean, the way Ted and I would write is we would outline and we would split it up. So mm-hmm. we'd each write half. So I, I was writing always a half a script okay. on my own. But you're still breaking um, this thing. But you're breaking it together and you also have that safety net of, you know, handing it over mm-hmm. and, and working it. So it was, you know, there, there was just a, that gut check uh, thing where you didn't have the person who was going to say like, oh, this is bad. You had to really, you know, I had to look at it just myself. But I did find um, it to be actually really... Uh, fun because as great as it was writing with him, you're always compromising. You're always having to, you know, sort of explain something and and, mm-hmm. and win these arguments to get these <laughs> you know these things. And to not have to do that um, was great. I don't think I could have done it when I was you know 23 and starting to to do this. But after all the writing we had done together, I felt like I was at a place where I was just like, okay, this is you know for for you know, I think he's felt the same way. It's kind of great now to just be able to to do that. And it's just you're writing. You know, twice as much. You're writing the whole thing, um, but I found it uh, to be really, you know, rewarding and a, and a good writing experience. I mean, as good as a writing experience <laughs> could ever be. Right. Yeah. It's always terrible. Yeah. But this was not, this was okay. Um, I want to talk about process with all of you guys. Um, and uh, Rebecca, I want to come back to you. And you know, you talked about writing the first forty pages of this pilot during the hiatus, and I want to talk about just what your days writing are like for all of you, but specifically I'm curious about going back to it mm-hmm. um, later, however many months later, and making the decision to sort of, or having the realization that you can follow the characters and you don't have to follow these sort of procedural guidelines. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of new writers will be faced with something like that and wonder Am I just justifying the thing I want to do? Mm. So how do you know that you weren't? How do you know it, that was the right decision? Uh, I have a good friend who's a writer who, you know, it's like if something just isn't working, if you just cannot think of that one thing, it's like it's, it's really valid to explore that maybe there's a reason your brain can't get there and that it's not meant to be. Mm-hmm. And I was really trying to bend... I was trying to bend the character's reality to get to what I thought the script had to be at the end of the Mm -hmm. pilot. This idea that like these two characters have to be like buddied up to solve this crime at the end of and and I just it wasn't working and and I just I was like no she needs to do this other thing and it just worked and I just I was I guess I was at a place where I had confidence in my skills. I don't know if. I would. I'm certainly not someone that says like throw away the rules. Um, right. You know, like <laughs> probably like get good at them first. Um, sure. But and it's not that it 
became not a crime story or there's not mm-hmm. procedure still. It's just that there it's there's two leads. There's also this Cape Cod drug task force agent mm-hmm. who and they only have one scene together in the pilot. So he mm-hmm. carries a lot of the procedural gotcha. in the pilot and she's doing this other thing and has a big character arc. And then they're yeah, going to end so up together kind of, later. You kind of knew what you could follow there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I get asked a lot. Uh, a question that new writers often want to hear is about those choices. How do you know? Mm-hmm. And it's a hard thing to explain, right? You just know as you're going what the right move is. Kenny, have you faced this uh, in, in writing on your own or even writing for someone else where you have that story turn that the story kind of takes you where it wants to go? Yeah. Um, sometimes I resist it. Like mm-hmm. you were saying, sometimes I resist it. It's like, no, I have an idea. This is the way it's supposed to go. But uh, it comes up. And then what I usually find is after time, I'll find it just by letting go. Uh, one of the tricks I've been using now is uh, if there's a scene or a really troublesome part of the script, I'll just copy and paste it into a new mm-hmm. document, take it out of the script. Because I'm usually thinking, oh, this has to fit together because of this, and this has to, you know, I, if I pull that thread, everything else is going to... So if I put in a new document and just see it for itself and just start over, Interesting. I can usually figure it out that way. Um, and, and during this pilot process, I think it was a little harder for me because I was so close because it was personal <laughs> that I tried to stay open to notes from the producer, mm-hmm. David Gellari, and from the studio and network, where usually it's like, hey, guys, <laughs> I got this, I got this. But this time I was like, well, let me hear their notes because they're looking out from the outside and they may see some things. Yeah. And so what did you take from them? What, what kind of stuff were they giving you that you felt was of value to the script? Push this character a little further. Mm-hmm. Uh, stretch, stretch the characters much further. than Because I was kind of looking at everybody, okay, this is how this person behaves. Because I, I know this person. Right. And they were saying, well, if you stretch it a little here. And the biggest note was, we don't think that character would do that. And that's the note was like, hey, I know these characters. You guys don't know these characters. But... Reading it again, I was like, oh, yeah, I think that does go a little too far and doesn't really sound like the character. And they were right. Funny. And I think the biggest thing was my first scene. And first scene is always a big deal for me because I don't really know what it is when I'm writing that first scene, but I get attached to it. And then as you get to the end, it doesn't, tonally, sometimes it doesn't match up that first mm-hmm. scene. And so they, Jan Alare, the producer, gave me the note. Studio gave me the note. Network gave me the note. And I, for each time, I pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. <laughs> and then finally, I sat there and I was like, Maybe it's me. And I did. The, I pulled the scene out, looked at it again. I was like, oh, that's where I went wrong with it. That's what. No one gave me the exact note of what was wrong with it. They, everybody was like, it's just not working. Sure. But, Which there's value in that yeah. and hearing that more than once, for sure. And then when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is why they're saying that. This is why it doesn't work, because I really don't know what this scene is about. Right. And then I fixed it. So That's was, great. Um it's so the first yeah. scene of a pilot is the hardest. <laughs> they, it's the hardest thing to write. I mean, I talk about it on the podcast all the time. It's so hard to get that f- first scene. You have to do so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, on this Rev Run thing, I came up with what I, I, I you know, was struggling because it's a family show. And how do you just come out of the gate? It's so hard. People want you because people want you to get laughs right out of the gate. Well, laughs come from character. If you don't know the characters, how are you going to get character laughs? You, you end up writing these sort of. You know, hard jokes that just aren't really coming out of character, and those aren't ever that satisfying. So I, it just came to me. I was just like, let's start this show. We've got Run. He's an incredible rapper still. Let's just start with a concert. Let's just see this guy doing what he does and being incredible. And you know, I had him write these rhymes that are in the style of Run DMC because he's not exa- he's not playing Run. He's playing a version. He's playing mm-hmm. Speed, a version of Run. <laughs> and uh, and so and then you so you see him. We just shot this big concert scene, and and then you'll see him at home as a family guy and it's right. just like that I was able to cheat in that way but usually yeah. you don't have something like that if you can't you almost always you need some concept some device you can't just start writing in a comedy in that first scene you have to have some higher concept of what that scene is or you just end up rewriting these jokes a million times and when I did my second pass on that scene I did exactly that I put hard jokes in it and then it was yeah. turned it in and they were like yeesh <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute just maybe we should just send it without it go back to the yeah. <laughs> and wow. I read it I was like, yeah, these hard jokes, they don't really fit anything. They don't feel like the show. I'm just right. trying to answer notes. Trying to get a laugh right out yeah. of the gate because they want you, they have this idea, especially with networks, they want the dial. And when I, 
I don't, what I mean is when they test these things, they have all these people and they have a dial that they turn up and down depending on how they're feeling about it. And you watch this like EKG kind of, you know, you watch this graph and they want it to just kind of shoot straight up. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's impossible. Immediately and stay there. Yeah, it's impossible. <laughs> and so the only way to, is a, what's going to do that? A cute puppy? You know, <laughs> I mean, there's only a few things that are gimmicky that will ever do that. Um, because the natural thing is, oh, I get to know who these people right. are. And now I'm laughing because I get, oh, that's the anal character. And she's making, you know, like whatever it is. Um, but that's what they're looking for. You know, they get nervous if the, that, that graph goes up too slowly and a lot of time they do think oh just put some harder jokes but those jokes just yeah. they always They're fall cheap. flat and They're yeah cheap. and you'll keep rewriting them a hundred times because the problem is not the joke the problem is it's yeah, a yeah. hard joke and it's not a character joke I wonder if that's and, and you guys have been in this position too of staffing for comedies and you get this this mound of scripts to read right you get a drop box full of all the new scripts all the new pilots and they they're tough going and it's <laughs> and it is in part because Introducing a world is so hard. Pilots are so hard, and especially, like you say, that first scene in a comedy is so hard. Times have changed, and I think it's it's much harder. Like when I started, you just wrote a sample of a script that was yeah, a show that was and then existing an existing show, which show, yeah. was easy for a writer because I just want to see if you can you know tell a story, you know get the voices right. of the characters, hit some jokes. That I think is especially for lower level writers. That's a great litmus test. Absolutely. But, you know, to ask someone who's never written before to come up with a whole world and everything, I, I think it's unfair, but it's just the way the yeah. business is now. Listen, we make it our point on this podcast to push back and say, bring back spec scripts of existing shows, because yeah. there is a lot of value. And as a young writer, that's the job. You're emulating your boss's voice, the showrunner's voice, right? Um, I wanted to ask a, a, a similar sort of question on Gotham. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sort of a big... There are a lot of hands in this, yeah. I would imagine. Yes. Um, there's a lot of input, and I'm, I'm just curious about how the room forms stories over mm. the course of a season while still keeping that stuff in mind. That was an interesting process. I had, you know, I had started on The Mentalist, but I think I was staffed season five, so it was such mm-hmm. a well-oiled machine. And then to go to Gotham, which season one, and to be on a show, you know, breaking a show that hasn't aired yet, and there's so many hands in the pot, like DC Comics, Warner Brothers, Fox, I mean, and nobody knows what it is, and everyone's terrified, and everyone wants it, expects it, needs it to be huge, because it's fucking Batman, (laughs) and it should be huge. Um, So that was, there was a lot of back and forth Mm -hmm. um, in that process. Um, It also wasn't a super room-heavy show, which, um, yeah, that was... uh, So how did it work? I mean, we must have sat in the room a lot the first few weeks, but then, and you could say, how well did it work? <laughs> I mean, it, there's there's value to being in a room on a serialized mm-hmm. show. Um, I think season one, also there was the idea that it wouldn't be a serialized. Um, oh, really? That we, I think, I, I remember it being that he, the showrunner really wanted there to be sort of a case of the week hmm. element to it. And then... Um, and then there was pushback on that. Um, so then it was sort of rejiggered to be more serialized. Um, but uh, certainly in that camp, uh, there was a, there, we were encouraged to break stories on our own, you know, as much as possible That's on our so own boards, in our own rooms, and then kind of come and pitch them to the room, pitch them to the showrunner, mm-hmm. pitch them to the number two, get feedback, and then kind of fit them into the episode before and the episode after and make it work. But um, wow. not as much room time. And then I was just on Code Black where we were in the room all yeah. the time, even though it's almost completely standalone, <laughs> procedural, yeah. Those guys very room, little serialization. Serializ- serializ- yet we were in the room all day long and it was a totally different experience and I really loved it. And we also gangbanged every script on mm-hmm. Code Black, which I'd never done, you know. Really? Um, I haven't heard that much for an hour long, uh, this kind of group writing. Yeah, we would, we would all take an act and we did that for the outline and for the script. So... Um, Is there stuff from having worked on these two shows that, you know, theoretically you'll be co-show running or mm-hmm. close to show running this new show should it get picked up mm-hmm. that you'll take from these experiences? I definitely, I mean, I don't know about being in the room all day and eating lunch together. Like, it's a little brutal. <laughs> but um, but why not? Why not get that mm-hmm. value out of your staff, right? I mean, 
I and there was a real closeness and a real bond, and also the ownership you have over a script when you've written a quarter of it, and then at the table read, and you, you your joke is still in there, or your tearjerker is still in there. You feel you feel good about that, and I think there's value to feeling invested in the whole season as opposed mm-hmm. to just like the one or two scripts that you write. So how did that? I'm just curious how the group writing. Work. When you say uh, we, you all took, so you individual writers would. So let's say would, I'm writing episode three, mm-hmm. so we would kind of pitch. I mean, this is a medical procedure right. we're talking about, so we're not like reinventing the wheel, but um, like it's gonna. I have you know, you'd pitch a few ideas. Probably you'd pre-pitch the showrunner some ideas. Let's have botulism and <laughs> car crash, and uh, it was always about the character story. So you kind of get some ideas approved beforehand but then you just bring it into the room and you'd kind of be running the room that mm-hmm. when it was your episode but not really um, and just kind of we worked very fast by like you know three or four days kind of breaking the episode we would pretty much have a board to pitch the showrunner and then we would go off to outline and the writer of record would assign the acts to whoever they wanted to and usually take the hardest act for themselves and We'd come back in, we'd go over it, we'd note each other. And a lot of times when you're doing it that fast, like you find the same scene in act one and act two, like somebody wasn't sure. paying attention and they, <laughs> you know, wrote the same thing. Or, you know, you're a lot of a lot of smoothing of information. Um, and then we would do another pass, usually a second pass after we gave each other notes, and then the writer would take the document and Clean it up. Clean it up and get it. Draft. Yeah, do the last draft and That's neat. do the notes, and then the same for the script. Huh? And and I mean, it's clearly efficient. It clearly works. Yeah, well, you would have a script in twenty four hours. That's, I mean, it's amazing. It's not. I don't think it would necessarily work on a more character. Sure, you couldn't do Breaking show. Bad that way. I don't think so. <laughs> but you could have the show, and I called it <clears throat> Clay on the Wheel, and you would yeah. you would get Clay on the Wheel really fast. That's I mean, there's something really tempting as a to think of being a showrunner and having a script being like okay I'll see that script in two days I mean there's something appealing about that I don't know if you necessarily get the quality that you want (laughs) out of it but but you do have something to work with I think yeah I think there's elements that I would be interested in using Um, you guys have both been in all kinds of different rooms Um, Andrew when did you and Ted join Friends in what season uh, we wrote a freelance episode the end of third season and then we came on staff we were there fourth through tenth yeah um, and, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast. I've had a bunch of the Friends writers on. But what was your experience coming in on 4? And it was it must have been a pretty well-oiled machine by that time. Yeah, it was. I mean, it helped that um, you know, we. I, I did know other writers socially. And um, so I, I had some kind of friends, you know, on the staff. So we weren't coming in as complete mm-hmm. strangers. And that experience of writing a freelance, which doesn't really happen that I'm aware of anymore at all, but when we did that, the way it worked was you came into the room and you pitched Mm -hmm. stories and you broke the stories in the room. It was like you became a staff writer for the breaking of that episode in the writing. And so we'd had this sort of tryout um, where we really were in that room for a few weeks. And so people got used to us and we and so it wasn't a tough that tough a transition when we got in there but it, you know it, it still was it, you know it was intimidating and I think in those situations you just have to tell yourself not to be intimidated I remember you know one of the first days um, Marta Kaufman who was one of the creators and showrunners you know said, pitched something that I disagreed with and I just showed, I was just like I'm gonna you know <laughs> make my I'm gonna stand up and say no I think it um and I think people probably looked at me like, what are you doing? But I think she got, oh, no, no, no. I, you know, it was all coming from a place of really caring. And I think I had, had a good point. I was just like, I can't be, I can't sit here and be afraid because I'm not going to really contribute. Um, Which is, that's really good advice for any new writer. I think so. I think it's, you got to cal- so calibrate it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you can't do it too much. <laughs> but I think if you just right. sit there quiet and I, I don't, as a showrunner, I don't want just yes men, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I might bristle, you know, but then I might come around. You know, yeah. I might at first say, just like, no, 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 this is good. And then I'll sit there for like, I'll go, actually, you know, you, you do have a point. You know, this mm-hmm. is, there's that instinct. And when I supervise writers, I tell them the same. You get notes from the studio and there's that first thing. It's just like, you just hate them. And you're so <laughs> like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And you got to get past that to like, oh, you know what? You know, just like Kenny saying, it's just like you're saying like these notes, you, you know. You know, especially when someone's writing something autobiographical, I've supervised with people like, but my my brother wouldn't do this. And it's just like, okay, okay, you know. Um, but you have that first 
instinct. And I still have it every time. I hate the note. The first, and then, sure. all right, and I do that with my writers. So I appreciate people who are not going to just then be quiet for the next two weeks after that happens, but they're going to stand up. And so I think we just made a decision to try and do that. But it is hard. You're coming into what was then a, already a giant hit show yeah. and a really tight-knit group of writers um, what was nice was there was a few of us who were new to the show or pretty new would come on the, and we got we would get together on the weekends and really? be like we're gonna pitch we're gonna like let's just <laughs> think let's just come up with some stuff we're the like new kids we're the young that's new cool. kids that's cool. and we like I came in I feel like I've never <laughs> yeah. heard that <laughs> yeah I mean we really did that's we're like great. okay well, here, here's some stuff we came up with and it was and uh, and some of those, you know, turned out to, to be episodes. Yeah, they turned into episodes, and I think we all we just wanted it so bad. <laughs> we wanted to be good and to be able to, you know, to play at the level. And we had writers on that staff. You're like, mm-hmm. I want to be as good as Greg Malins yeah. or you know these guys, and just like I want to come up to that level. And you know, um, and I also I had worked on some other shows, but I had learned nothing on those shows. Yeah. I, I learned That's the thing nothing. I was curious about. But bad habits on those shows. Really? Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize until I got in the room, I was just like, nothing on these two other shows is useful to me here at all. What were some of those bad habits? I don't know. There's just, there's just, you know, you get these shows where if it sounds, if it has the rhythm of a joke, mm-hmm. it's a, it's good enough and it goes in. First thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, can we pitch on this a little? Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, no, no, no. That minute. sounds like a joke. And it's just like, but we didn't, no one was really, I mean, and when I say like no one laughs, sometimes well, there's a laugh and there's a laugh. You know, what I mean, sometimes you get like people laugh, but it's not like a real laugh. And friends, they would look for like, are we really laughing? And if not, let's keep let's keep trying. Let's keep pushing past this. And on those other shows, it was like, ha ha, yeah, good, okay, that goes in. And it, it, it just you know that that did not that didn't fly in that room. And that's why I still try. You know, I do it now with these writers and there's yeah, you know, and sometimes the whole staff is going like, "But oh, this is this is good." I'm like, "No, I've heard that. I've, yeah. I, I just feel that feels like a joke I've heard a bunch of times. I just let's keep going. Yeah. Let's push past that." Um, but this and this is a thing. Uh, I mean, Kenny, you've worked on a bunch of multicam sitcoms, also. Yes. Um, and it's a thing we were talking about a little bit before the microphone started recording. <laughs> but like, it feels like there's a, a a lower expectation, right? This thing of writing a joke that well, this will pass for a joke. And people get it. So how can you as a writer on staff say, no, can we talk about this for a minute? Or is that your place? Uh, on staff? You mean like a staff writer? Well, not necessarily oh, that low level, but someone who's not the creator or showrunner of the show. I think everybody should bring that up. you know. But it's, for me as, as a showrunner, it's who brings it up and when they bring it up. Uh-huh. If it's a person who's just, that's all you do is bring up what's not working. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Somebody who's higher up and they have experience and I mm-hmm. see what they're bringing to the room, it's like you can give them room to say, hey, this doesn't work. I don't know what it is, but this isn't it. Then I'll say, okay, well, let's let's work on it. Um, and even if a staff writer says that, work on it. You know, let's work on it. Let's talk about mm-hmm. it and see and try to make it better. There's nothing wrong with making jokes better. Uh, multicams. What I love about multicams, because Marlon is actually multicam, and yeah. I've been away from multicam for probably eight years now. Yeah. What was the last one? Was the game multicam? Season one, then it went hybrid two and three, then oh, single really? cam four through nine. Okay. So that I'm not so much worried about in the beginning because I'm like, okay, we got run throughs to start hearing things mm-hmm. and then we can start. You know the problem. Ta- yeah, the yeah. table reads, that's when we can start beating stuff. And, and I never want the script to be 100% going into the table because usually then it starts. As the week goes on, people keep saying the same jokes and it loses the impact. So if I can get it at like 80%, 75 and then after table read, punch a few more jokes, punch a few more jokes, and then get it to the floor. That's interesting, this par-baking of the script, because you know you're going to have to keep working on it. Oh, I've heard killer jokes just die by the time we got to that network run-through. But it's only through repetition, which is crazy, because when the audience hears it, it's it's going to be the first time. Sometimes it is, I feel like showrunners have to go like, okay, I know we're not laughing as much, but this is still a great, if it was once a great joke, it will be, but you're right, they die. I mean, I'm always, if I supervise writers, I'm like, this is a great joke, don't put it in the outline, don't put it in the first, you know, save this, because the same thing funny. when you're going through the pilot process, they're going to start to, they've heard it. So just hold on to that. Certainly don't put it in, in your outline <laughs> if that's a joke you really are going to think you're going to end up using. I do remember on Jamie Foxx with this one joke, and we brought in this guy to, as a guest star, Chris Parnell. This mm-hmm. was in the 90s. And it was the same joke, and every time he hit it the same way, and it got a huge laugh every time. It should have died by the time the fifth time we heard it. <laughs> 
But Chris Parnell had a way of just exact. I'm not changing a word. I'm not changing anything. <laughs> Boom, and it hits. That That's was amazing. That was just one that sticks in my head forever. That's really funny. That's so rare, though. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think what Kenny's saying, the, the idea of, like, you got to pitch the fix is, the <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. you have to pitch the fix. You can't, if you're that person in the room, the uh, however valid, who bringing up, just bringing up problems and not bringing them up, up, even if you don't have, it's just like, in the, in the context of, oh, how about this? Not just this is bad, but like, this isn't quite right. Some, maybe something like this. Something in the you have of. to be pitching the fix, yeah. or there's nothing that's more irritating and upset for it than just a person who's, and even if they're right a lot of the time, it's just like, all right, well, then help me out. Okay, right. yeah, you're, give me. Get me, get me closer to what the right I can find someone on the street to point out that this is wrong. Anyone who's gone to a movie is going to go yeah. and tell you what's wrong with that movie. Um, was this for you? You had come up as an assistant yeah. and being in the room for the first time. Did these sort of you know rules and ways to sort of comport yourself in the room come easily? What, did you have to learn it? Uh, that's interesting. You know, I gone to Whatever. I have, like, another world as a writer-director. Yeah. Um, and I have a feature and stuff that I don't even want to get into that stuff. We're going to get into it's, that. But um, I definitely had to, yes, I definitely had to check myself in terms of, like, you're not a director here. Yeah. You're, like, a pre-staff writer. So <laughs> shut the fuck up and listen. But I think it was really good for me that I had been an assistant on The Mentalist and had heard the notes over mm-hmm. the years, had heard the room. By the time I was pitching ideas for the freelance, it was like I had such a good relationship with everyone on the staff. Everyone wanted me to succeed. Everyone was so helpful. I was so comfortable. It was just like the best first gig. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In terms of like feeling support. And then when I was staffed, it was like it just it, it didn't feel like I had to learn the etiquette. I mean, I just sure. I mean, it was fine. You had internalized the I way guess that, so. this, that yeah. everyone works. Yeah. I think on yeah, and then I think on Gotham, I probably, I probably, I probably have like an inner Eeyore, like naysayer vibe, but I was taught very early on to like curb that. So, sure. and I and I think I, I have. And um, if you can heed that within you, yeah, then great. Like I hear that voice, like right. that sucks, but like don't open your mouth until you have a suggestion. And on That's our cool. last show, we it was a joke, but it was. Real, we would say yes and instead of no, but <laughs> right. like was always like that very much that like improv idea mm-hmm. of like let's riff on this sure. and add you know something yeah to let's that. spin this out and then yeah. take what's good about it I think that's that's probably a good attitude yeah. um, how did you get the assistant job in the first place <laughs> um. Like, like nothing that anyone listening to this is going to want to hear. It was Here's literally. Let me, <laughs> let me interrupt for one second yeah. and say. So I, I put out word earlier this year <clears throat> to say, listen, what what have I stopped asking on these podcasts that you want to hear about? And everybody wants to hear about breaking in, and I've stopped asking about breaking in because nobody's breaking in story is the same as anyone else's breaking in story. Yeah. These are non-replicable stories. Right. But maybe. In total, we can take some lessons from them. So, with that said, I'm going to ask all of you about breaking. Okay. Them. So, go ahead, Rebecca. <laughs> so, I was very much like a late bloomer, and uh, so I'd gone to graduate school. I had done my thesis mm-hmm. film. I got to Sundance. I had representation. Yeah. I was working on my first feature, and I was like a reality TV PA. Oh, like my. that's my level of Weird. like ability mm-hmm. to like promote myself so <laughs> I had this like secret life as like a sort of successful person and then like my real life as a PA and um and then I was so I, and I was like assisting like in post and then I was assisting at this place called Yari Film Group like in the physical pr- production department mm-hmm. just like very much not kind of I guess not really following my dreams had no concept about scripted television at mm-hmm. all I really wanted to be a writer director and features um, and so the part that no one's going to want to hear is literally just a good friend of mine had been Bruno Heller's assistant and had gotten staffed herself on another show and just called me and said, do you want to be Bruno's assistant? <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then I like had lunch with him and he was like, okay, you're my assistant. And <laughs> Which, look, sometimes yeah. that's how it happens. Yeah, it, and it I showed up at Warner Brothers someone. and was like, this is amazing. And then like... <laughs> Saw the writers getting paid and like having a fun <laughs> job, and it seemed like not that hard. And I was like, 
oh, this is like a really good life. Like I should try and be a TV writer. Like <laughs> fuck this. A regular job, not yeah, trying like, to hustle a movie off yeah, the ground. Yeah, exactly. And then I actually did direct a feature while I was his yeah. assistant. He let me take a month off and do that. And I had like a one-year-old kid, and I did this like fifty-thousand-dollar movie. Wow. And that sucked, and I was, then I was like, I really <laughs> want to be a TV writer. This is like a way better gig. So um, did you keep your representation from earlier, or did you find new reps as a TV writer? I found new reps as a TV writer. Okay. And did you, did you, how did they find you? Was it just through Mentalist? Well, so I said I'm not good at like self-promotion, but I had one, I had one period in time where I was clever about it, which is that because I was showrunner's assistant, I had been reading staffing submissions mm-hmm. for years. So I had relationships with all the big agencies. Sure. Um, so then when I, I guess, what was it? Yeah, so after I'd done the freelance and I had also done my feature, I and I knew I was, I was hoping to get staffed, mm-hmm. but it all depended on money and blah, blah, blah. So I asked all the agents that I was dealing with to read my feature and to read me oh, and to see great. if they would represent me. And I ended up going with CAA and... Great. Um, so, you, but you had the material, and you sort of had a footing. I had the feature, and you, I didn't and have, you had these relationships exactly. with the agents, so it yeah. all kind of came together. Mm-hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, Kenny, it looks like um, Jamie Foxx was the first show you were staffed on. Is that right? Yes. What were you doing leading up to that? Uh, the I'll give you the quick as quick as I can. Yes, yeah. it's uh, always I, a long journey. <laughs> the uh, senior year, senior thesis. They mm-hmm. said you can do scripts as a project, so I did that, and I wrote a few Seinfeld scripts. Right. What were your Seinfelds about? I love hearing what people's spec scripts were about. (laughs) I remember one was uh, Elaine met a guy in a Ferrari, and his friend in the passenger seat was flirting with And so (laughs) she ended up going out with that guy, but she wanted to go out with the driver of the Ferrari. And then she started finding everything about the guy in the passenger seat was the other guy's thing. Like the mansion (laughs) he was house-sitting for, oh, it's his thing. And so she was really annoyed. She's like, I don't know if I like him or I really like (laughs) his friend. Um, Yeah, that's one of the storylines. That's great. And so when I was getting ready for my defense, I uh, decided to call up... uh, NBC switched me. NBC New York switched me to Castle Rock in mm-hmm. LA. Switched me to the show, and I ended up talking to the coordinator, asking some questions about the show. That's so funny. So after I graduated uh, that summer, I called the coordinator, and said, "Hey, I got this money from graduation. Can I come out and just see what you guys do? Visit?" Because I, I was in um, DC, Virginia, mm-hmm. and so I came out, and spent a week on the set, just kind of talking and asking questions, and right. then I ended up meeting Larry David, um, Gary Shandling, because he was okay. shooting the. Larry Sanders show on the same lot, oh, okay. so I ended up spending a day on his show. And so when I got back, I was like, "Hey, I gotta go. Give me some money. Let me pack <laughs> right. up my things. Let me move to L.A." And so I moved out about a month later. And um, uh, the line producer from Seinfeld, Susan Greenberg, set me out on some interviews for PA positions. <laughs> and one was at Martin. And it turned out that uh, Martin's family is from Landover, Maryland. I'm from D.C. So I went and met with uh, Martin's brother, who's a producer, and. He was like, they called me the next day and was like, hey, we're going to hire you. And then I remember that first day he called me in his office like, hey, they didn't want to hire you. (laughs) Oh, no. yeah, he was He was like, you know, you've been in L.A. six weeks. You don't know the job. You don't know anything. But I saw your resume. You're from D.C. I know how hard it is because D.C. was murder capital at that point. Yeah. You know, to go to college and to break through. He's like, I'm going to give you a shot. So don't embarrass me. And so he hired me. I wow. was there for about four months as a writer's PA. And then the showrunner, Bentley Kyle Evans of Martin, mm-hmm. was creating the Jamie Foxx oh, show. Okay. And so I would... Pull them to the side. Hey, anything on that pilot? Let me know. And so, were you uh, writing all the time? As a, like, did you even have time to write some stuff and just I keep had that muscle? One Raymond. I think I had one Raymond script. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't have a Raymond script then. I had my Seinfeld script because Raymond. Okay. They were. I had the choice between the Jamie Fox pilot and everybody loves Raymond pilot. No kidding. And I was like, Nah, I'm gonna do the Jamie Fox show pilot. So that's funny. I went over there as a PA with him, and then that first season, I was a. PA, writers PA on the show, got to know the writers and mm-hmm. Jamie and his manager, the producers, and then I had known about the writers training program for minorities, and I knew there was uh, a writer who had gone through it and was able to hustle himself a job on Fresh Prince, and so I went to all the producers and say, hey, I want to do this program, you guys cool mm-hmm. with it, and they all signed off, uh, Warner Brothers was like, nah, we have our own workshop sure. where we get people from, but there was one exec, Melinda Hagee, who, mm-hmm. uh, 
she she said, you know, I've heard a lot about you from the other producers, and they're really excited about you, so I'm going to help push this through. And so the second season, I became writer's trainee, and they contract for writer, staff writer, story right. editor, and then stayed there till we wrapped. It's cool. I mean, I think there's a, a good lesson in here, too, about... Like, you went about this in a really sort of smart and humble and sort of earnest way. Like, this is what I want to do. Who can I meet who's doing this thing? How can I let them know that I want to do it? Yeah, usually when I talk to people, especially when I talk to kids, I try not to leave out a lot of things because there were moments, some of it was just being young and not understanding you can't mm-hmm. go up to Gary Shandling and right. have this conversation. Because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the bold person to do that. I was just like, I was snuck on the set the other night, I saw four walls and I didn't understand single camera. And so I just was like, hey, I got a question for yeah. you. I, would I do that now? Probably not. Right. I probably would be like, hey, you can't do that guy. Hey, hey. <laughs> well, there's naive earnest. Yes. And then there's actual, like... And some of it was just, you know, uh, I, I knew what I wanted to do, and let's just keep your eyes open, watch what's happening. Mm-hmm. I saw in Martin, it was fourth season, and everyone who, who I talked to there who had been there first season as, like, PAs had moved up to mm-hmm. editing or directing or stage managing or writing. And so I was like, I don't want to be on this show in the fourth season. I want to be at a show at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so that was why I said, okay, let me, this guy, I'm going to take a risk and go to this show with this guy. I don't know what's going to happen, but let's do that. Interesting. Um, I think you said an interesting thing, too, which is not wanting to be in the show in the fourth season. And I say this as someone who was on a seventh season show. Like, that's hard. It's hard to be in that and come up with stories. Before breaking in, I wanted to ask you about when you guys went to Friends on the fourth season. They'd done 50 episodes, more than 50 episodes, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. They'd done. Pitching stories on that show must have been insane. Yeah, it was it was took also because I don't know if we had watched I don't know if we did our homework and watched all the <laughs> which is uh, hard yeah, to do which is too, yeah yeah they're doing it was twenty two twenty four I, I know and it was fine you know my best fr- you know one of my best friends was was working on the show but I still didn't really always watch it but I, I would that I would recommend watching all the episodes of the yes. show so you're not um, it's always embarrassing when you pitch hey what did we do this and they're just like yeah that was season two <laughs> yeah. episode five just like huh. um, but yes it it, it it is tough that you know that was. The good thing about that show is it was about you know I was the age of the characters and so you really could just pitch what happened to you over the weekend a lot of the time and and, and learn how to and I think what that show taught me more than anything is probably like take something that maybe doesn't seem funny it just is real and it's specific and then we'll figure out how to turn it into a, a story but to identifying those things and then learning how to turn them into story but instead of saying like here's a wacky crazy thing that they could get up to don't start there start you know um, with uh, you know I I was at my friend's place in, in New York and she had this giant sofa but the stairway was super narrow to get up to her place and how the heck did she get the sofa up there and it's just like okay that becomes this thing about getting the sofa up the stairs or one of the writers bought a pair of leather pants and it's just like we were all making fun of him wearing leather pants and that turns into something or you know my girlfriend at the time we had this you know cabinet that looked like an antique but it was from Pottery Barn and she didn't want anyone to know and I was just talking about that okay now that's like the apothecary table story you know all these things are just like they don't seem necessarily I mean the leather pants was funny you know just but but it's just like somebody's like yeah you know there's a scene and how do you turn into a story and so that was what you sort of caught on like oh I can just you know this and then you know this could happen and identifying a character you know that it could go for but but it's it it is hard and when that has come up you know there's been those jobs where you're coming in late and the show is just like that's an intimidating thing I can't imagine it what if you started on the Simpsons right now it's like how do you how would you ever yeah. do that um, that is tough I, I do feel like the thing that these two guys aren't really saying is they probably did an unbelievably good job at those assistant level jobs yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, was, I was a good PA I was, yeah. a, great, I was a great PA <laughs> that is the thing and, and, and I think to, right? and I that's was a mediocre I, assistant <laughs> really yeah but I don't. I don't buy that. He liked me. Yeah. He, did, he didn't want one of those A plus. Okay, but you sensed what he wanted, and you yeah, delivered right. what you. Yeah. I just you know the, one of the stories about. I you know um, because you know Ira Ungerleiter and Adam Chase, who I think you've had Adam on mm-hmm. here. You write some mom now, but you know both. So the, 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 I grew up with those guys in New Jersey. We all moved out here together, and they got the they got jobs first. But we were all started out as assistants of one. Mm-hmm. 
variety or, or another. And Adam was James Brooks' assistant at Gracie. And one of the things he had to do was he, you know, James Brooks liked, you know, this fruit bowl and he wanted that fruit mm. shiny. He wanted it to look <laughs> perfect. And so one of Adam's jobs was he polished those apples in that fruit bowl. Oh and I think he never complained and he made those apples super shiny and perfect and you didn't look like this is beneath me and I don't want to do this too much I was just like that's the job I'm going to be the best apple polisher (laughs) and so everyone you know people notice Richard Sakai noticed so when he has a spec script and he goes goes to Richard Sakai he's like hey will you read me and I you know read our our spec he's like yeah because you are a hustler like you are a hard worker and you try hard and so yes I will do you that favor and that's where you know that's how everything Hmm. You know, started rolling, and I, and I think that was the same. You know, I had, you know, I, I was an agent, um, like a literary. I was an assistant. I was a literary agent, but I had, you know, I, I, I just had like connect. You know, people who just were inclined right. to say, yeah, you know what, I will give this to right. to an agent because for you're you. doing the job. Because you're doing the thing. You're doing, doing that yeah. job, and you're not in such a rush to skip steps and get yeah. to the next thing. No, you, you know, this is your job is to get lunch for the writers. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many PAs from friends who got us our lunch on time and got the orders right who are now in big jobs sure. somewhere because mm-hmm. they did that. Yeah. That job, they didn't complain about it. They just they did that job, and they did you know, and they were great. And we were like, you know what, you want a favor? Yeah, I'm inclined to help you out because you know you've shown to be a hard worker. Just yeah. to speak on that, yeah, yeah, I was only a PA for a year and a half, but and I was 22. For me, it was like I'm in Hollywood. You know, why should, <laughs> why wouldn't I want to get these tapes when you say take the tapes now? Yeah, give me the tapes, I'll deliver them. And I I remember the f- I was only at Martin for like four months, but like the second or third month, I asked the showrunner, could I sit in the writers' room during hiatus week when things are slow just for like an hour just to see what you guys do and he said sure and I sat down I, after that week I remember the coordinator saying oh they they never let anybody go into the writer's really? room and then I heard him talking to somebody who was like oh I watched him for two months hustling around here he never spoke to me during those two months mm-hmm. but he watched wow, me and he great. heard things and he was like oh, why wouldn't I give this guy a shot yeah. and so uh, it just I try to tell people don't hope oh, PA is griping all the time. Oh, mm-hmm. I got to make this delivery. Oh, somebody wants extra <laughs> something on their thing, so I got to go back to the restaurant. It's like, hey, this is all I'm here for. <laughs> this, is, this is 100% why I'm here, is to do this, and hopefully next thing will come. Right. Yeah, it's it's good advice. Um, you guys, we have to leave it there. We could, we could go for another hour. This is a great group. Thank you all so much. I want to ask you, uh, just to wrap up, what you are watching on TV these days. What is getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your family, your room, your friends, whatever? Uh, and Rebecca, let's start with you. Um, I started American Vandal last night. I have a really hard time watching TV. I'm very reluctant to binge anything. I not, I'm nothing. I have to be compelled deep in my soul to keep watching. Otherwise, I'm tired. I have two kids. I want to go to bed. Sure. Um, so it's not... And I can watch a pilot and think it's great, mm-hmm. but not be compelled to keep watching. So very few things compel me. Search Party compelled me this year, right. so um, and this one I kn- last night I, I know, like I know we're finishing this one. <laughs> nice. So, Kenny, uh, I just started. It's the end of the fucking world on Netflix. Oh yeah, yeah, an executive. It's so strange. I I love it. It's I really British, like it. It's dark. It's funny. The yeah. tone is so like you could never pitch that tone. You no, just have to make that show. <laughs> yeah, and I think some of the things, they wouldn't want to see the dark turns in that. Like, yeah, hey, well, can't, true. can't have the kids do that. Um, an executive turned me on to it last week, and um, yeah, I love it. I'm on episode four. Yeah, it yeah. goes down so easy, too. Yeah. Uh, and the, those actors are great. Yes. It's a good show. Yeah. I, I do recommend it to people. That's a good one. Andrew, what are you watching? The Crown. Um, so good. Which, we just finished season two. Yeah, I'm halfway through season. I'm oh. always amazed at just that I was talking to one of the Netflix I was like how much money do you spend on this show it's so beautiful and so um, it's great uh there, there has. I'm trying to think. You know, I loved Ozark so much. I know the, you know the shows that that stick with me. That you know were Handmaid's Tale and mm-hmm. Ozark. I, I loved both those those shows. I like Search Party a lot. But um, yeah, I don't have a ton of time right now to watch stuff. Yeah. I'm about an hour into the four and a half hour Tom Petty documentary, um, <laughs> which I heard is really good. So good so far. So, uh, yeah, that's about it. Um, do you guys uh, watch other comedies? I'm always curious because it generally. I, comedy people don't watch a lot of comedies and drama people don't watch a lot of dramas I watch yeah. a lot of TV uh, <laughs> if I get up at 5 I'll try to watch one or two shows before <laughs> I get up um, and in the evening but I watch all the Seth Seth um, 
Oh, the McFarlane stuff. McFarlane stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched The Mick. Mm-hmm. Um, I just started watching Alone Together on uh, Freeform. Oh, it's yeah, on yeah. right after Grownish. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I try to watch out. everything that I can. I just, I grew up on TV, so mm-hmm. I try to consume as much as I can. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. Are you watching other comedies? I, I don't watch a ton, and, and when I do, it's the, like, cliche snobby you know <laughs> veep and silicon valley and Listen, yeah shows. i mean yeah silicon um, valley for yeah, me it's it's the funniest those, show. Those, those hbo comedy yeah. you know and it's you know i think um there are not there aren't that many shows that that really have stay have i feel like have staying power for me even mm-hmm. though it's like i kind of i i stop after a while you know broad city which i love so much i, mm-hmm. I realize oh wow i've got yeah. 10 of these um you know, stacked up on the DVR that I'm not watching. Like what you know, yeah. and and maybe it is. Um, you know, there, there's this soap opera element that I feel like. You know, again, having sort of grown up on Friends, you know, I see like, oh, how smart it was that soap opera element yeah. made it. Um, you know, I think maybe Thirty Rock is just as is you know is a brilliantly written mm-hmm. show, and yet for me, I didn't have the same compulsion to, to see every episode because it lacked that. You know, yeah. th- that element um so you feel like oh, i've seen you know i don't have to see any particular right. it was an episode. amazing joke machine it was a joke machine but you're like if characters. i'm just tuning in for the jokes that, that's right. and it's the same sort of with broad city which is so mm-hmm. smart and, and great um so there aren't that many where i feel like i've really stuck with them i get these sort of brief infatuations with comedies and then you know kind of end up tuning out uh, yeah no it makes a lot of sense um, thank you guys again for being here. Good thank luck you. with Thanks. all of your, your current things, your pilots, your projects. Uh, we're excited to see what you guys do next. And please come back and talk to us again. This was fun. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 